Theological reflection may require more than just a knowledge of the Bible. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological uh, Podcast for the Pastor Theologian. You can find us at toddlittleton.net, pathological.com, or pathological.net. Our purpose is to consider the intersection between pastoral work, pastoral ministry, or the even the lay experience of pastoring and theology. Today on the podcast, we welcome Tony Jones. Tony Jones was one of the first theologians in residence that I uh, had a conversation with a number of years ago. While he's moved on from maybe that as his particular calling card, he has some good reflections that might be helpful for the pastor theologian. Now, before we get to that interview... Let me remind you that we'd like you to uh, visit our sponsors, LSTN Sound, the product with a project, helping people all over the world hear through your interest in a quality set of headphones. And then OikosHandmade.com. Mother's Day is just around the corner. There'll be some other maybe birthdays over the course of the summer. Maybe you want to get ahead on your fall shopping. This is craft-made, handmade, crocheted items. You'll find some items on the website. The Hoikos takes uh, custom orders. If you see something you like but you want something in a different color, you can request that. At both those websites, when you get ready to check out, if you'll enter Pathological, you'll receive a discount. And we want to say thank you for supporting us. Now, here's my conversation with Tony Jones. All right. Hello. This is uh, Todd Littleton with Pathological, a podcast for the pastor theologian. And I'm excited today to have uh, Tony Jones on the podcast. We took a run at this, but my audio recording just stunk. And uh, you just can't do justice when you have the good doctor on. So I uh, checked the schedule and, and uh, Tony was able to make it work. And, and, and I'm glad to have him on today. Tony, it's good to have you today. Thanks, Todd. And you know what? Um, what's funny is there have been a few recordings of the Homebrewed podcast that Trip and I have done uh, that have never seen the light of day, but not because there were technological issues. Hey, you know, when we, we set out to kind of get together and kind of one of the things I had in mind was, was really to talk about the idea of a theologian in residence. And I pulled out an article. It's, a, it's an older article from almost, well, it's actually two years old now. Uh, in the Christian century, and Lawrence Wood uh, undertook to try to describe uh, exactly what is uh, a theologian in residence. Why would why would a church have one? And and I thought that maybe I'd, I'd take a couple of cues from there, and then and then we can kind of take off from that. Uh, any thoughts that come out of that? Sounds good. So uh, Barbara Brown Taylor is quoted as saying that the body makes theologians of us all. How how would you interact with that line? The body? The body makes theologians of us all. You know, um, I assume she means the body of Christ, right? Is that what she means in that? Yeah, I think so. I think she's yeah. she's talking in, in that context, someone who, I, for, her, for her context, uh, um, once someone's been baptized, the body, that experience, that Christian experience makes theologians of us all. 
Yeah, I think I've, I've tried to make the argument, um, especially in a book that I wrote called The New Christians, that we're all theologians and that theology isn't just... I got in a big argument with John Frankie about this many years ago, and which he said um, all... All theology is second-order discourse. That is, it's all reflective on action, uh, human action and divine action. And I argued back at him that, in fact, a lot of what we do as human beings is inherently theological. So theology is also first-order discourse, or at least it's embedded in first-order discourse. And I mean, I think he. I think he's right, and I think we're both right in different ways. Um, but I'm just saying. I, I just tried to make the argument that let's not relegate uh, theology just to those people who sit back and think about divine and human action. Let's talk about theology embedded in divine and human action, which I, you know, is I guess my roundabout way of saying yes. I agree with Barbara's quote that. You know, the body makes us theologians. At least the body, you know, what we do, we do theologically. Yeah, and so when you draw that, that distinction, uh, we're talking about divine and human action in, in given context. So that's going to have some frame of reference to the varied human experience. Yeah, the... You know, the only way to access divine action uh, is through human experience. It's, uh, in my estimation, only through hermeneutics. That's the only way. Um, in other words, you know, we may claim that God has acted in a certain way, but all those claims are always subject to scrutiny by other human beings because, you know, uh, maybe it wasn't God. You know, maybe it was some other phenomenon. Right. And um, so, yeah, it, it's always comes comes to us through interpretation. Um, but that is also part of the human, the bodily human experience, you know, for sure. Right. And so when when we start uh, talking about how we interpret our experience and we are going to mediate our understanding of divine action through that human experience, um Obviously, we're engaging a lot of disciplines. So, as a pastor, theologian, or a theologian in residence, you're doing more than just dealing with uh, theology as a discipline. What are some of the other disciplines, some of the other considerations you have, you uh, take into account when you're reflecting theologically? Well, um, I think there are some pretty big ones that. If, if you're going to be doing theological reflection, you've got to uh, you, you've got to make some choices. There's some, or there's some, at least some choices embedded in it. You've maybe already made those choices in advance of um, of your theological reflection. But for instance, one, one thing you're going to have to determine is what are your sources of authority. So, you know, if, if you're a biblical inerrantist. You have a certain view of the scripture as um, a, the norming source of authority. If you're a Lutheran or Episcopalian, um, then you um, also hold like tradition, you know, as um, 
a normative authority. If you're Pentecostal or charismatic, you probably think that the movement of and, and voice of the Holy Spirit is normative. Um, if, if you're a Congregationalist, uh, you probably hold the, the, hum, the individual human conscious as normative. So that's one thing. You know, people should not be unreflective about what they think is, you know, the, their normative source of authority. That is, what do you give authoritative weight to when you're making these decisions, when you're, when you're reflecting on divine and human action? Another thing I'd say is, um, you know, the you take into account other disciplines, right? So, right. Um, I, you know, for a long time, well, still, because I'm, I'm working on a grant with um, Luther Seminary, and I'm uh, science, right? Developmental psychology, and how does the adolescent brain work? You'd, you'd be a terrible pastoral theologian doing youth ministry if you said, I don't really care about the differences between adolescents and adults. That's immaterial to my theology, all my theology is about is God and human beings. I'm like, well, you know, there's a reason adolescents are the way they are, right? Or um, if you're doing youth ministry, you're going to want to, um, like, your, say your kids in your youth group go to public high school, you're going to want to read up on the sociology of uh, the current, you know, state of public high schools, particularly the ones your students go to. So there's another thing that you're going to want to think about as a pastoral theologian, you're going to want to think like, what's, what's, what do I think about interdisciplinarity is a big way, way of saying it. Like how do other disciplines, like the ones I've talked about sociology or psychology implicate our theological uh, reasoning? Absolutely. And I think that that, you know, forces us to uh, read widely and at some level, um, maybe you could help uh, with some suggestions. Uh, because there's a breadth in other disciplines that most of us pastors are not necessarily familiar with, um, where do you look for those you trust? In other words, you know, s- someone who, uh, h- how do you vet uh, authors in, say, a discipline uh, about which you aren't as familiar or versed in? Hmm, that's a really good question. I, I think you probably ultimately have to rely on other people in that field and that profession. Uh, You have to look at um, somebody's uh, work and whether it's been peer reviewed in their field and then kind of high, how highly it's touted in their field. So let's take, um, let's take, for example, Tanya Lerman's book, When God Talks Back which uh, I think came out in late 2014 and got a lot of buzz in 2014, 2015. Well, she's an anthropologist at Stanford, and she wrote a book about um, her research on people who basically think that God speaks to them, mostly Christians, mostly uh, um, charismatic and Pentecostal Christians. And so her book, as an anthropologist, she does not claim to be a theologian, but she, um, her book was very well received uh, in the anthropological community and subsequently uh, was at conferences because she has done very insightful work um, in, into Christian community in a way that, you know, a theologian 
is probably not going to do. So that that's you know that's one example. Uh, Christian Smith, when he did you know ten years ago, did his national study of youth and religion out of Duke. He's now at Notre Dame. Oh my gosh, the, the he he's a sociologist, but the the impact that that study had on youth ministry was just it would be hard to overestimate, you know. So those are examples, I think. Um, because sure, you're never going to be an expert in. You're never going to get a PhD in sociology if you're a pastoral theologian. Right. Even even when I was doing my PhD work in practical theology at Princeton, we had to become versed in other fields for our doctoral work. But it was also understood. Look, you're not getting a PhD in sociology. You need to be, but you do need to be conversant in sociology. And that's a that's a good word. And and I think that uh, you you gave a great illustration that probably many uh, who listen in will remember, and that is Smith's work, that you, you, you are correct. I don't, I don't think there is a way to um, overstate the impact of that study uh, for youth ministry. I remember when it came out and conversations I had even with our, um, our uh, youth minister here, and uh, um, that, yeah. that gives us a good footing for uh, other arenas in which we might need to be conversant with, to, to use that That's as kind right. of an illustration. So, yeah. so let, let's uh, let's let, let's uh, talk about Tony for a second. So, you you've had experience um, being a theologian in residence. You are you do practical theology, and and so when you describe the various ways that that people have to decide uh, what what's their norming authority. What is Tony Jones's norming authority? Hmm. Well, um, I still, even in light of, you know, um, all the ways that I've studied uh, redaction criticism and historical criticism, I still afford the Bible a unique authoritative place in my kind of overall theological schema, though I wouldn't, you know, it's not in the traditional way. It's surely not inerrantist. I don't think it's, uh, you can not question it. I, I really think it needs to be read in context, but I do think there's something unique about those 66 books and the way that they've been, um, treasured and guarded by the church uh, so that's that's big for me. I would also say I'm a real I'm a real fan of um, real fan of of history. I'm a real student of history. I read a lot. I study a lot. I think a lot about it. So um, that's that's also big for me. The way that the church dealt with things in earliest times in the, in the early church period and the medieval period up through the Reformation. I find that really fascinating. Um, I'm less enthralled with the way the church, you know, I'm less enthralled with 20th century theologies in some way, though I'm not a church historian. And and as you know, you know, we share a love of Jürgen Moltmann, and he's a 20th century theologian who's, you know, super um, important to me. Right. I, I think the thing that's important, to, and the reason I ask that, I hope that it didn't come off as kind of a blind side. I, I, I ask no. it for really important reasons that that you really um, 
have been pigeonholed in um, some, well, in many contexts. Uh, and yet we've talked a number of times over the years, and um, your esteem of the Scriptures uh, has never uh, uh, wavered in, in our conversations. Uh, you rightly noted that we're not talking about a, a particularly inerrantist position, but but valuing the Bible and, and the, the, the place you give it in a schema um, uh, certainly doesn't... Uh, Put you put you outside the pale of orthodoxy, as some would try to mark it. You know. So. Yeah, I, it's a funny. I mean, I, I realize that I kind of occupy an odd place on the theological landscape because uh, I'm yeah I'm like probably too enamored of the Bible and too orthodox for the liberal academy. Um, I'm even. In, in a lot of ways, I feel out of step when I teach at a place like United Seminary in the Twin Cities. I'm, I'm to the right of, you know, some of the students I teach, um, for sure, even though I sometimes think they've gotten to this leftist position without a great deal of thoughtful reflection. But um, and then, of course, I've been, you know, kind of cast out by evangelicals long ago, you know, like a decade ago. So um, because of my, you know, embrace of same-sex marriage, for instance, in 2007, 2008, 2009, when I was blogging about that, writing about that, that's such a shibboleth for so many evangelicals that they're like, oh, he must not believe the Bible anymore. If, you know, if he came to that, if he came to that um, decision. So anyway, yeah, it's it's a funny deal. I don't know um, really how to fight that. I've tried to fight it, and I don't know that I've fought it well. I don't know that I've done much. You know, I don't know yeah. that I've made it much of a dent in the way that people um, think about me. But well, I think the I think, and you know this, but I think part of the problem is the way those particular arguments are framed. And so it's it's really more a lot of times those are framed in in terms of if not this then that and so whatever whatever line uh, uh, any particular person wants to draw as as their particular um, uh, subject du jour they and, and depending on where you land on it then why who knows you know where any of us would be if if that were that were sort of the case. The reason I the reason I wanted to raise that is is um, I I want to talk a little bit about did God kill Jesus uh, mm-hmm. and and the reason is 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 um, I I found it um, a, a number of things about it that were were really helpful I, it was very readable so it's something that if someone were wanting to kind of get a grasp of the differing views of the meaning of the atonement. Um, You've done a good job of trying to put those, certainly with your own, spin isn't the correct word, but your own idiomatic way to describe them that, that kind of helps maybe more modern readers understand what's what's really at work in in some of those particular theories as they're known. And, and then I always like it when someone's constructive, and so... 
while you have always done and shown an interest in history, like with your little book on the Didache, um, you, you're offering a proposal, and it's constructive. It's not destructive. It's constructive. You're, you're wanting to say that something actually did happen, um, and that's got to be rooted somewhere. So it's certainly rooted in uh, uh, a realism that, you know, at least is in back of what's going on in the Scriptures, and it's rooted in a, an appreciation for uh, history, in particular Christian history. So um, I, I wanted to know, Tony, so what, what really drove you? I mean, why this book? Why this subject? Hmm. You know, Todd, I really, I, in some ways I feel like I go back and forth um, uh, there are times when I feel, you know, not very much hope for traditional Orthodox Christianity as we know it. And <laughs> I find myself writing books that are like rooted in history, like that one on the Didache, or I, I, I wrote an annotated version of Augustine's Confessions, things like that. Um, I kind of dive into history right now. I'm in, in one of those phases where I'm immersing myself in history. Um, and then there are other times when I'm, I'm much more sanguine about, um, the current church. And I feel like, man, I can really do some good here. If I write about something right into it, I did that with the new Christians, which is a book on the emerging church movement. I did that years ago with a book called postmodern youth ministry. And then I did it most recently with this book called did God kill Jesus, which was a way, um, you know, so, so that's one thing. I mean, I just want to write into the church in its contemporary situation. And then another thing is I think, you know, um, uh, when you're a theologian, it probably it's the case in any field. Um, but when you're a theologian at a certain point, you come to terms with the fact that you are not going to be the next Karl Barth. You're not going to be the next Jürgen Moltmann or the next Reinhold Niebuhr, right? You're not going to be a, you're not going to change the theological conversation. So then you, you know, you pick, and I, I think there are a lot of people actually in theology who they know that, but they still are trying to write in that way that those kind of um, very high ranking, you know, in the NT rights of the mm -hmm. world or Stanley Hauerwas of the world. But the rest of us, I, I mean, I just feel like I realized my vocation was to popularize and write in a way that people could understand theology. You know what I mean? Right. Like that they, that, that I would take big ideas that people are talking about and thinking about and I would write about them in the way that the person sitting in the pew could read them and understand them and even be entertained by them. And, of course, there's a great tradition in um, American theology of doing that. I mean, you might say um, – you might even say that Jonathan Edwards did that. You know, his sermons were – deeply theological, and yet he was preaching to lay people, some of whom were uneducated every Sunday. You know, um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote books that uh, lay people can easily read. Henry Nouwen did that kind of theological work. Um, I think Frederick Buechner did it. 
So um, when I do, you know, nowadays, Tom Wright writes popular books for Harper One and writes academic monographs for Fortress. Um, Bart Ehrman, you know, uh, is a is a leading biblical scholar. But every couple of years, he comes out with a very popular level book. And he's really gotten the ear of a lot of people. So I just made that decision that that's the kind of theologian I was going to be. Not that I wasn't going to tackle big ideas, but that I was always going to do it in a way that people could read and understand. So both my, in my writing and my public speaking, I take that that part of it very seriously. Like I consider my I consider my method of communication as important as the actual ideas that I'm communicating. Hmm. Well, I certainly think that uh, we do need folks to help translate a lot of what, you know, is discussed or explored in, say, more academic uh, uh, writings, like you mentioned, an, an academic monograph. And, and so I, I think there's a place for it. And, and so while you give us that as a motivation for your book, I, I, I don't want to move too quickly from it, but I, I think it helps us uh, talk about a project that you're, I, I'm assuming you're leading. I know you're editor for, with Fortress, the, the, the project uh, Theology for the People. Um, so what are your criteria and you, are you looking for in those writers and what subjects or, or is there is kind of the door wide open for any number of subjects that you're, you're looking for? Yeah, we, we launched this um, about a year and a half ago and our first books came out in late 2015 um, because at Fortress, they've, they've really done just an extraordinary job for many years of doing high, very high-level theology, uh, both kind of traditional that We want to get back into what in the industry is called trade publishing, and that means you know the kind of books that go to Barnes & Noble, the kind of books that most people buy and read, not academic monographs, not books that cost $45 and are 600 pages long, but um, books that cost... Sixteen ninety nine come in paperback and are one hundred and seventy five pages long. You know, uh, so that's what they approached me about, and um, so we we just really wanted to double down on what we're already good at, and that's theology. But we wanted to do it, you know, instead of in a way in, when an academic way that a book sells five hundred copies, we're interested in books that are going to sell five thousand copies, and really you know, change the conversation in the pews, not just in the academy. So when we call it theology for the people, we really mean that. We mean theology, but very broadly conceived. So not the traditional catalog of theological ideas, you know, but really anything theological, anything that has to do with God, meaning, truth, uh, reality, sacred text, and for the people, like, that's the driving force. It's got to be for the people. And that, I will be honest, like, as the, as the you know, senior editor on this, on this line of books, dealing with a lot of authors, it's the, the for the people part is what trips people up. I mean, there are a lot of, fa you know, theological faculty members who approach us and, and really want to write a more popular book, they've kind of 
they've already kind of earned their stripes in the academy. And now they want to turn their attention toward writing in a more popular fashion. And boy, people struggle at that. Uh, really, really struggle. So, Well, see, I think that really gets back to, um, you know, value of your book and, and others I know are coming out in the series. And that is, uh, if you're going to write for that audience and hope to, say, sell 5,000 copies, translating is pretty difficult. And I don't mean translating from, you know, a foreign language, I, although I guess it could be argued that academic language can be certainly foreign uh, to, to the average person. But, you know, you're, you're grappling with uh, the meaning of the death of Jesus in Did God Kill Jesus? And so it represents kind of what you're doing with Fortress. And so you're, you're taking some pretty high um, concepts, ideas, uh, speculations even, and putting them in uh, accessible form. And um, I think that's what, you know, the value of a theologian in residence or a, a pastor who's uh, really attentive and uh, attempting to, you know, at least do some good theological work along the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've got um, books by people whom your listeners would would know, um, Jason Michelli has written a cancer memoir that's that's funny and poignant, but it's also deeply theological, deeply theological. And he's not he does not uh, beat the reader over the head with it at all. It's very subtle. I I thought that the way that you and you'll see when the book comes out later this year, early next year, but um, the way he handled it. The way he handled the theology of it, he does it so gracefully and so subtly that, and, he, and yet so beautifully. I mean, you can just tell he holds his the, theology and what he thinks about God so close and so dear, even in the midst of of uh, his you know struggle with cancer. Uh, and another book that's just just on the brink of coming out as you and I are recording this is Richard Beck's book called Reviving Old Scratch which is kind of a new theology of spiritual warfare. Um, and, you know, here's a guy who's a professor, but thank God he's also a blogger, <laughs> you right, know? Right, he, he, um, he He does a Bible study at a maximum security men's prison every week. Uh, the church that he goes to is like a church for recovering addicts. Um, so he has, even though he teaches and he writes, um, you know, for the academy, he has never lost touch with people. I mean, if you've got to communicate the Bible to dudes who are in maximum security prison, right. you know, it, it keeps you pretty honest about how you talk about these things. You can't just be dropping PhD words to, to impress people. And so they, you know, uh, in, in fact, the reason that he, um, the reason that he even talked, the reason we titled it Reviving Old Scratch is because that's how the chaplain um, thought about it or mentioned it or talked about Satan in a prayer while they were holding hands with these, all he calls them the men in white, and they're wearing these white jumpsuits, you know, Texas uh, prisoners. And 
later he says, what do you mean protect us from old scratch? Richard says this, like, what's old scratch? And he's like, that's the devil, man. Hmm. Like, that's old school Southern yeah. slang for the devil. And so he came to terms with the fact that he had kind of outgrown the devil, and, you know, because he's got a Ph.D. and he's a psychologist and a theologian. Why do I need the devil? But then he was like, hey, if I'm going to be spending every Wednesday with these guys in this prison and they believe in Satan, well, maybe I need to, you know, think about that again and not just brush it off so quickly. So it leads it leads to him write blogging about it and then ultimately writing a book about it. And that's the kind of thing that just really turns me on. Oh, n- no doubt. I, I saw the uh, I saw the note that that was was uh, coming out. And, um, I, uh, 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 I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to getting a copy. Would love to be at the, uh, the podcast where you all are going to uh, chat about it with, uh, I think Greg Boyd and, and uh, Greg Boyd, and Tom Wright, and yeah. Tom Wright. That ought to be pretty fascinating, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, Tony, let's, let's, uh, let's, Let's offer something. Uh, I'm not that what you have uh, described isn't uh, significantly practical, but let's say that um, uh, some young uh, ministers happen on and happen by to listen, and 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 they're really interested in um, maybe uh, paying uh, greater attention to theology. I like to, and it's a it's it's a bit pejorative and, and maybe a caricature at that, that to describe it. A lot of ministers uh, in their training are trained in the pragmatics. Yeah. Um, and and so uh, if they're like me, uh, have always had an ear to theology, but get get really caught up in you know your early years of pastoring, and you want to do well, and you're using everybody else's measuring stick, and and so you 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 find out so you're really interested in what works kind of thing, and so mm-hmm. it's not that you don't think about things, and then then you have maybe a particular uh, tragedy, crisis, or event in your ministry, and you go, oh, uh, that doesn't really solve that issue, that really doesn't address the grief, it doesn't really kind of bring mm-hmm. presence to suffering. And so if you were going to offer some suggestions to uh, some young ministers, um, some disciplines, habits, practices, where they could um, maintain, uh, say, their theological acumen in the midst mm. of uh, the trying to, you know, still do this thing we call pastoring in a pragmatic sense, what would you suggest? Well, I think... Um I think reading as widely as possible is a great practice. And I think that so many of us get so busy and, you know, reading kind of gets crowded out of our lives. Thoughtful reading, I mean, and I don't, you know, obviously we read all the time, all the time. We read emails and text messages and social media and, um, I get that the pastor is overwhelmed by incoming words on screens. I I know that. But I'm talking about thoughtfully reading um, where you carve out a couple hours and you sit down with a serious book and you read it and you you read it with a pen in your hand, you know, Um, and that might be poetry or it might be uh, the latest uh, hot theological book that uh, Trip Fuller is talking about on homebrew Christianity. It might be 
uh, work of sociology, or it might be, um, you know, a novel that's on the top of the New York Times bestseller list that all the literati are talking about. Um, I think that's a great, great practice. And, uh, you know, that, and so to read broadly across many fields, you know, in, in, in years past, the pastor theologian was actually known for that. Um, there's a great tradition in America of pastor theologians and, you know, a lot of the great theologians in the American tradition, most of them, I'd say, of the, of the really leading top notch ones were also pastors, either early in their career or they did it all the way throughout. The Niebuhr brothers um, are a prime example of that. And so it, it's just a challenge then to be um, kind of a bit of a renaissance man or renaissance woman, um, which I know is kind of, it seems almost impossible to do these days because there's so much out there. But that, I guess that's one practice that I would really highly commend. And if you were going to make a suggestion for one of these young ministers who wanted to kind of hone their uh, skills at more popular writing, do you have any uh, suggestions on writing, any books that you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, there's some really great books on writing. Um, I mean, there's the the more clinical thing like Strunk and White and uh, the Chicago Manual of Style, which... Uh, you know, it's, it's really, it really is fairly shocking to me as an editor, um, how, how much some people struggle at just the, the kind of basics of English grammar, you know, and sentence variety and things like that. So it's never too late to educate yourself in, in that just kind of the fundamental mechanics of writing. Um, but then there are some just great books on, you know, on writing, the writing life. Um, one is uh, Bird by Bird by uh, Anne Lamott, which is her book on writing. And um, I just love it. It's such I a do. great book. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there there are others kind of in that same vein that I've read about writing um, that – it just can be so helpful. And then, you know, just you, you look around, look around at how people who are um, writing in ways that capture a lot of people's attention, look at how they compose. I mean, just instead of just reading Scott McKnight's blog or David Fitch's blog or whatever, just, just to glean information, like take a minute and look at how they actually write. And what do you what do you appreciate about it and what do you not like about it? You know what I mean? Right. Read some old Frederick Beekner uh, sermons. He was, he was probably the guy who, I mean, this is a little nerdy of me, but I was reading his stuff when I was in high school and it just turned me on to think here's somebody who's so articulate and such a great writer. Um, and he can write about things, the things of God in a way that's, that's just so compelling um, that that's he was probably the guy I read and I, and he wrote some novels too, which I really, really loved. And he, I just thought, boy, this is, if I could pull off even just a, you know, a fraction of what he's done, uh, I'd, I'd die a happy man. 
<laughs> well, I think those are some uh, fantastic recommendations. And, uh, and, and you know, <clears throat> there's, uh, I, I certainly want uh, my listeners to know that uh, Tony's not just an, an, an editor and just not written a book or two, but, but uh, a very deep thinker. I, I've read a number of Tony's books, uh, some of his, even his uh, small self-published little works, uh, as well as he mentioned the New Christians. Um, we mentioned uh, Did God Kill Jesus, his little book on Didache. So um, this ought to be an inspiration to you if you happen by and, and listen in on this podcast and you're, you're wondering, you know, how can I, you know, kind of grasp some opportunities to um, really communicate good theology in, in a way that is accessible and uh, can be constructive and make a great contribution to the life of the church. And uh, so, Tony, I want to say thank you for your time. And uh, I appreciate your friendship and your, hey, man. And your willingness to, to, uh, to get online here. And, and uh, we'll keep an eye out for uh, the ongoing uh, releases in Theology for the People, try to tout those over on the blog and, and try to point folks there because it's, it's uh, I think, a great project and, and good resources for us. Thanks, man. Well, I, I appreciate being on, and um, and yeah, I, I likewise, I'm I'm a admirer of you and your work and the way that you've uh, you know you push your people to uh, think about things and read things and listen to thinkers that maybe um, it, you know uh, they're not always encouraged to read. So I I appreciate you taking some risks and always pushing to broaden the conversation. I think uh, if, the, if the church is going to survive, then that's going to be a big part of it. We're going to have to really listen to each other. Well, I think so. So let's do that. And I look forward to more. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks, Tony. Hey, thanks for stopping by and listening. Do us a favor and share the podcast. Head over to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and review. It helps us get noticed and get the word out that we want to provide a resource for the pastor theologian. And while we've described our sponsors, let me let you know that uh, Pathological is part of the Roundtable Media Group Network. Head over to roundtablemediagroup.com and check out the podcast there. If you're interested in advertising, send me an email, todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. And thanks for listening. Until next time. Peace.